Welcome to Becoming Church, the podcast where we discuss how the message and movement of Jesus is not just about becoming Christians, but about becoming the church. I'm your host, Kristen Mockler-Young, and I'm so glad you are joining the conversation. Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Church. Today I'm here with my friend, Mark Demaz. Mark is the founding pastor of Mosaic and Little Rock. He's also the co-founder and president of the Mosaics Global Network. Mark, how are you? I'm great, Kristen. Great to be with you. I know we've looked forward to this for a month or two and uh, glad to be glad to be with you today. We have. It's actually fun. We've gotten to interact a good number of times over the past few months. You were with us at Mosaic, spoke at Mosaic a few months ago, and then we were in Florida together. Yeah, great experience, both at the church and at Exponential, uh, a large Actually, Exponential, you probably know, is the largest church planning conference in North America uh, on hiatus for two years due to COVID. And it was great to be back with everyone and great to have you with us uh, leading and speaking in a workshop as you did. Yeah, it was awesome. It was fun to be able to be part of your team, but also, like you said, post-COVID, just to be able to be back, you know, with people and and networking again. So that was awesome. Well, Mark, we want to talk today. I want to talk to you about kind of diversity in the church, multi-ethnic churches, and in a way that I know we've talked a lot, had a lot of pastoral leadership conversations, but for the people listening, I don't know, maybe even we should just start with diversity in the church. Like, why does it matter? Where does it come from? Yeah, that's a great uh, question that I have been reflecting on literally since 1997, for those listening, uh, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and uh, altar boy, Catholic educated, uh, Jesuit educated, very uh, worked six years in the rectory. In other words, very familiar with Catholicism, grew up with it. And of course, from an early age, you're taught to pray and you do in every mass, the Our Father, right? Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So in 1997, when I was the youth pastor at a thriving church here in Little Rock, Arkansas, in fact, in 1993, 2,000 people in the church. Eight years later, 5,000. My youth group, 150 to 600. I built a 36,000 square foot dedicated student center, three full courts, uh, gyms, 32 foot climbing wall, top 2% of paid youth pastors in America, 500 kids in small groups, 250 volunteers, <laughs> on and on and on. I could tell you, right? And then one day I looked around this otherwise amazing church and realized the only people of color were janitors. Oh, wow. And that began to bother my spirit. I didn't know why in 1997 that just didn't sit right. But again, it caused me to reflect on that ancient prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And I realized, Revelation chapter 7, 9, that the kingdom of heaven is not segregated. Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will one day be part of the eternal body and bride of Christ. And so in 1997, I began to ask myself the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the church? And for now, almost 25 years, I've been pursuing that dream, trying to answer that question. And I would say to listeners, uh, to your listeners, those thinking about it, I would excise the word diversity in the church, because it's really a matter of discipleship. Every church in the New Testament, as I later discovered through exegesis, every church in the New Testament was what we would call today a healthy multi-ethnic church. It was men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, 
in an equitable way, Galatians 3.28, walking, working, and worshiping God together as one. And this more than the mere proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the demonstration of the power of the Prince of Peace to be lifted up and draw all people unto himself, that demonstration is what captured the imagination of those early followers and, of course, spun into a 2,000-year-old movement now, uh, which at that time was called The Way. So what it's about is discipling the American church, particularly in our context, uh, uh, to, to pursue a restorative movement that's 2,000 years old. This is nothing new. This is not about political correctness. This is not about demographic shifts that are occurring in America. This is biblical. This is right. This is the hope of advancing a credible gospel in the 21st century. That is for men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, Republican and Democrat, on and on, beyond the distinction of this world that otherwise divide for the church to declare a credible gospel, lift up Christ, see all people drawn into himself, not just some people in the local church. And again, this advances a credible gospel. Yeah, so you're basically saying that it's, it's we need to live it out and it needs to be lived out. Because I, I think that for our listeners, for people that attend Mosaic, they get it right? I feel like I, I can see two types of Christians. The people that come to Mosaic understand they are at Mosaic because they believe in seeing heaven reflected, you know, in their church service on Sundays. But I also encounter on social media or other places, people that truly don't understand why this is important. Why do you think it's so hard for some people who consider themselves Jesus followers to accept that not only is this okay, but it's as it should be. Yeah. Well, again, first and foremost, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, uh, we understand, particularly as we come to the New Testament, uh, the book of Romans, for instance, the writings of Paul, we think we understand what is being said. And mm -hmm. what that boils down to is the gospel of eternal salvation, uh, grace, you know, saved by grace through faith, no other way, not by works. Christ alone is our salvation, eternal life. And this is called the gospel. Now, the word gospel in the New Testament just means good news. It doesn't mean eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. If you were drowning in a river and I reached in and pulled you out, it would be gospel to you. It would be good news. So over 2,000 years, and particularly in the 20th century, we limited the word gospel to mean only salvation in Christ. Now, I call that the capital G gospel because every other good news is built <laughs> on Christ coming uh, to bring us eternal life, uh, again, by grace through faith in him. But the first thing is we, that's, that's only half the story, if you will. A simple way to think about it is eternal life and abundant life. So Christ came to give us not only eternal life, but also abundant life in the temporal. And again, love God, love your neighbor. The biblical neighbor is not someone like you. This is the story of the Good Samaritan helping a Jew. It's someone very different than you. So this is all over the New Testament. And yet we have only been discipled, taught as if the writings of Paul, etc., are only speaking of eternal life through salvation in Jesus Christ uh, without this idea of loving our biblical neighbor, without the idea of actually living that out, as you said, in a local church. So the gospel of Paul, and I mean that sincerely, Romans 16, 25, he calls the entire book of Romans his gospel. 
And he makes a distinction between his gospel and the capital G gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 16, he talks about the mystery of Christ, Colossians 1 and Ephesians 3. What is it? The gospel of Paul, the good news of Paul built on the capital G gospel of Jesus Christ is that not just Jews, but Gentiles can be saved. Not just Jews, but Gentiles are to be part, an equitable part of the local church. And not just Jews, but Gentiles will one day be part of the kingdom of God. This is the good news of Paul. It's all over the writings in the New Testament. This is what they lived for. This is what they died for, uh, expressing that capital G gospel to all people, not just some, and not just in terms of individual salvation, but collectively to live this out on earth as it is in heaven to declare a credible capital G gospel to those far away from God. Long way to say, the first reason we don't get it is we don't know the Bible like we think we do, and particularly the New Testament and the nature of the church. Uh, number two, we don't get it because of what is called or commonly called implicit bias. So we have grown up in the United States, 400 years of a country predominantly pitched to white males. And this is historic. This isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, this is just the way it is. Whether someone can accept that or not, that's on them. But the fact remains <laughs> The entire country was set up by white males and white European males and for, uh, or in terms of privilege, opportunity uh, by and for white males. Now, that doesn't mean white males are bad. I'm a white male. Okay. <laughs> yes. So it doesn't mean we're bad or, oh my God, we're sinners and there's no hope for us as white males. But to recognize over 400 years, the systems get built. And not only do systems get built by and for predominantly white males over 400 years, but then what is taught to us, what is our understanding, what commercials uh, used to be on TV, the, the ideal home, Ozzie and Harriet, uh, on and on, all of this is subliminal, if you will, or implicit bias, so that today, fast forward to the enmeshment of Christianity with American exceptionalism, or as some people call it today, Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. the, our country and the story of our country, again, predominantly pitched to white males, has been enmeshed with the, the gospel, with the Christianity that our country in one sense was founded on. This is religious liberty. And so all of that means that in, in our divisive society, we are predisposed to look at the other as just that, the other, and to see differences, not commonality. And so this, in a word, is implicit bias. And so another reason is that we have a predisposition, both in our own humanity, birds of a feather flock together, mm -hmm. but also in light of the fact that we're Americans in the United States, uh, in part of this 400-year-old narrative, we are predisposed to give into what is otherwise natural, which is birds of a feather flock together, to see the other as someone different than us versus the commonalities. And this too uh, keeps us apart. By the way, when I signed up for this Christian thing, Kristen, I thought it was about living in the supernatural, not the natural. So going huh. above and beyond what is otherwise natural to embrace those that are different than me, to learn from those different than me, and of course, contribute to those who are different than me. So our lack of understanding of the New Testament, the implicit bias given 400 years of a story uh, of a narrative in America that by and large was built and told by white males for white males, 
And then lastly, we don't recognize that um, what the, the, the story of Christ and of the church is more than just in individual salvation, but it is also collective salvation. And that is done through the church. The church together then declares a credible gospel. Uh, we walk in love for our biblical neighbor. And again, it's just easier. So just to wrap that up, it's much easier. It's natural. And typically it's what we prefer. That is to go to church with people like us. But again, we're to live in the supernatural. Nowhere in the Bible is it about what you like. And of course it's difficult. But I think the life of Christ proved that this life is not always easy. And if Christ, if we're called to follow Jesus, expect difficulty, no paths for degree of difficulty in the word of God. I really like, but there's so many ways I could go there, Mark. <laughs> I really like that you said, you made a point to say, just because it was so influenced by white males, it doesn't mean that that's a bad people group. You know, I think so often in conversations that I've had with people that I know either in person, personally in my life or on social media, as I've just engaged with people is that they automatically want to get defensive if they are a white, you know, white or especially white males, but I've seen it with white females also. And there's this automatic response to be defensive. Well, not me. And I'm not contributing to this, but I think it's okay for us to recognize things were just passed down. Like I know for me, I grew up in a church that always had a white male pastor. My father was a white male, like a lot of the curriculum and the books and the things that I learned from did come from white men. And it's not necessarily that anyone was purposely trying to teach me wrong or through a certain lens. I think at least for me, I just never questioned it. And now that I've started to question and go, wait a minute, are there actually other perspectives? Are there other voices? It's like, now I can't see, I can't unsee what I can see now, you know? <laughs> Do you think that people are more curious now? Like, is it it's just, just my circle? Or do you think that people are becoming more and more aware of the patriarchy for lack of a better term and the way that even biblical writers, you know, were influenced by their culture and their time? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, yes, people are becoming more aware. Obviously, uh, we're in the uh, an age of information, which was predicted by the prophet Daniel. So information is accelerated. And of course, we simply call that social media, Twitter, et cetera. So everybody has a voice now and you're not limited to a textbook or you're not limited to your teacher. Everybody's a teacher. Everybody's got a voice, you know, in some form or fashion. And of course that accelerates knowledge and also foolishness, frankly. Now, <laughs> yes. um, having said that uh, in our culture and really every good story, going back to the dawn of time, there's a protagonist and an antagonist. Right. So even in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain's good, Abel's bad, or I'm sorry, let's see, Cain killed Abel. So Cain, wait, I always get them confused. Cain killed <laughs> Abel, right? So Cain's the bad guy, Abel's the good guy. Um, and, and this is part of a good story. Now that in our day, of course, uh, due to the media, which is all about making money, it, the media benefits from us being against each other. Yeah. Sure. So again, what is already natural, what, what is what we would otherwise prefer, it, we are fed to through the media related to the way they make money and behind it all, a spiritual system 
um, by the great deceiver and the great divider, which is Satan. So the greatest weapon that in the spiritual realm that uh, satan, satan, satanic forces have is to keep us divided. Marriages, yeah, whites sure. and blacks, Republicans, Democrats, gays and straights, you name it, men and women. Everyone outside of the kingdom of God benefits from division. So this division is, it's been there from the dawn of time, protagonist, antagonist, and it's only been fast forwarded, if you will, in our day due to the age of information and the speed of knowledge and social media, et cetera. So it's polarizing. Now, what I'd say to my white male counterparts is put your big boy panties on. It's not either or, either I'm a good guy or I'm a bad guy. This entire country, not just white males, uh, Blacks, Asians, Hispanics, men, women, rich, poor, this entire country, and I'm 60 years old and I can say this, has lost its ability to think with nuance. Mm. So everything is right, wrong, good, bad, black, white, and that's just not the way it is. So when I say to my white male counterpoints, put your big boy panties on. Look, just because someone points out there is the systems have been passed down, as you mentioned, not necessarily intentionally uh, and, and, and not enough inertia, if you will, to flip that and say, even though it's not intentional, we're not acting intentionally to correct that. But that information has been accelerated in our day. Now we're without excuse the idea of putting your big boy panties on means I don't just because someone says something um, derogatory, negative and or challenging to those of us who are white males doesn't mean I've got to go all the way to the other side and say I'm bad and then push back and fight. No, take the hit. Yeah. Like, OK, just take the hit and say, you know, there, there's probably something right about that. Or I see your point. And at the same time, this and this. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but again, I think the, uh, through our own human, human nature, through, as we mentioned, media, money, division, Satan, et cetera, we go from, you know, it's either, or, and I would encourage anyone, white males, others, even African-American, Asian, everybody think with nuance on these things. I, and I can tell you in my life, I've been a pastor 39 years. I have sinned royally. I have sinned more as a pastor, since I was 19, I mean, as a Christian, <laughs> since I did before I became a Christian, and I used to do Coke and pot and the whole work. <laughs> yeah. So I can tell you if, if my works and my sin was, if, if, in other words, dependent on being a pastor and a pastoral leader was dependent on the purity of my life. I would be so far away from the church, the pulpit, whatever. I, I am a sinner saved by grace. I used to think I got saved once for all which I, of course I still do, but now I also realize I'm being saved every day. Oh gosh. Yes. And, We're and being saved yeah. in every moment. Every moment I'm being saved. I was saved. Yes. Once for all and nuance. I am also being saved every single day of my life. Yeah. The grace and the mercy of God is shown to me every single day of my life, just like it was when I was a 19 year old college baseball player on my knees, giving my life to Jesus walking away from darkness to light. And, um, and, and again, this is nuance. So all that's to say is that, yes, but remember this folks, if you're listening, the media and people who are using the media, and I'm not just talking about big media, I'm talking about their Twitter accounts, their Facebook posts to build their own brands and suggest that they have worth and value 
because you are all divided, follow me and I'll show you the way, or play to those peculiarities, quote, speaking truth to power, all you do is further entrench power. You have to learn to bend the ear of power to the truth you speak. And that takes nuance. Yeah. Well, and I think you said people, we have a hard time thinking with nuance. And I would say some people just have a hard time thinking in general. They just want to be fed everything. So it's like, tell me what to believe and I'll believe it and tell me what's right. And I'll say that's right. And it can be even these small, small shifts in our thinking, like you said, saved once and for all versus being saved every day, both and. And I think it's even in these small ways of questioning what we believe and why that allows us then to grow deeper and have a tighter, closer relationship with Christ. And then to be able to go and be the church to the world, because we actually are living at what we believe versus what someone told us, Hey, this is the doctrine. This is the thing, you know? Yeah. You know, that makes me think, well, that makes me think Kristen, it's very good. The idea of thinking and thinking with nuance, uh, you know, I see also people today on, you know, in, in, as they express themselves through social media, what have you. And, and of course do it, you're doing it now. We're doing it now. Great. Do it. Yeah. But what I also see at my age, 60 years old is younger people who extrapolate one experience, their life to suggest this is the way it is. So there's a lot of broad generalities, in my opinion, that are made by people. One thing happens to them, and then they say, this is the way society is, or this is the way everything works. I can tell you there is a lot of hurt, pain, and trauma in life, and you're not the only one going through it, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to whoever you are, right? Um, Among other things, my wife and I buried a, a child. Our third child is in heaven, buried in the ground. Uh, that wasn't something that just happened to us. One in three women will lose a child at some point in their life. Yeah. Uh, on and on, I can tell you the, these things that are happening to you, whoever you are, it's part of life and different degrees and different situations. But at the same time, what I'm suggesting back to what you said, people don't think and, or they don't think with nuance as we read, as we listen to other people, and somebody makes a general broad generalization based on their limited experience, we have to be able to say, that's not necessarily true. And then people use the phrase, right? My truth. Well, frankly, what you're really saying is this was my experience. That's not your truth. That is your experience. And no one can take that away from you. But just because you interpret that experience in a certain way doesn't make it true for the rest of us. And so, again, the lack of thinking, the the inability to think with nuance, we are all, whether you're a Christian or not, in a much better place if you can learn to think with nuance and to speak with it, by the way. Yes, yes, which I truly think can only come after you've already, you know, learned to think and Mm -hmm. process and all of this Mm -hmm. for the people that, you know, right now deconstruction is kind of, it's a big, it's a big word and it's a big movement and it can go lots of different ways. There are people that hate the word deconstruction. There are people that love it. I think people even use that word to mean different things, but do you think people can make these changes? They can kind of unlearn and relearn without completely deconstructing and leaving their faith? And if so, how do you think we can go about doing that? 
Yeah, again, this goes back to nuance, and I am not a big fan of deconstruction. What I just think that really means is you're growing up and you know you're I getting love older. That. You're, you're just all that's happening, in my opinion, not all, because again, that wouldn't be thinking with nuance, but the vast majority of people that are, quote, deconstructing their faith, deconstructing Christianity, they're just growing up yeah. and they're learning to ask mature questions and they're learning to say what I was taught. I'm not sure that I agree with what I was taught may, in fact, have been true, but not the whole truth. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I've talked mm-hmm. about earlier with the gospel in the book of Romans. Yes, it explains the capital G gospel, but we were taught that's why Paul wrote the book. That is not correct. The reason Paul wrote the book was to express his gospel of inclusion for all people, not just some. And to make that case in chapters five through eight, he had to explain the capital G gospel. Now, that doesn't mean I was taught, I was taught wrong. What it means is I was taught incomplete. Yes. Again, it takes nuance to think about that. But in our world, for all the reasons we've already said, people go, oh, I was taught wrong. Well, no, you weren't. You were taught limited. You were taught incomplete. And just like since the dawn of time, with each era, with each generation, with each epoch, there's additional knowledge. There's additional learning. The collective knowledge of the world continues to build upon. So I'm not a big fan of that and the bemoaning and the use of, of this emotional word, what it means you're growing up, you're thinking, you're challenging things you've been taught. Some people are going to walk away. Some people are going to say, like I did, yes, and mm-hmm. I was taught correctly. And I was also taught uh, things or, or incomplete or not in the fullness. And as I grow older and I question things I see, It causes me to think deeper, to have interactions like this, where I grow in my listening. I I listen and I learn and I grow and I incorporate. And I'm always thinking, I can tell you I'm 60 years old and I'm still learning. Yeah. And I'm not deconstructing anything, but what it, what it, in the, in the sense of the way the word is used emotionally charged, what I'm doing is I'm continually constructing my understanding of God. I'm continually in an ongoing way, learning more about God, learning more about myself, learning more about life and people and all that. And is what I know today different than I was 20? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but as I it is tell, about life. Yeah, it's life. That, that's why I right. said this is just normal life. This isn't like, oh my God, I'm deconstructing. No, you're not. You're growing up. You're learning. You're continuing down the path of, of knowledge and of growth and maturity. And yeah, you've got to make some conclusions uh, about the things you do believe. But I can tell you this you're going to hit 50 years old and you won't think like you did at 30. You're going to hit 60 year olds. You won't think like you did at 40. It's part of life to continue to evolve, if you will. And certainly if you don't, you're stuck or you get fixed in your ways. Who wants that? Right? So I think it's not about deconstructing or even reconstructing, but it's this understanding that we are constantly constructing, uh, taking in things, rejecting things, adding more things, testing things. If anybody is sane and alive and healthy, you're going to do that to the day you die and don't have mental capacity. So it doesn't have to be like I'm deconstructing or I'm reconstructing. No, you're just growing. You're on a journey. You're continuing to learn. And the idea that you at, and I was, you know, at any age, even at 60 years old, to think that I got it all down, no way. I'm going to be learning till the day I die. And we should just embrace that and consider ourselves as constructing 
our own life, our own understanding, and what we ultimately choose to believe about God. Yeah, I think the term, I think it when it became a buzzword, you know, uh, for some people, I think it gave them permission to finally ask the questions that maybe they'd been wrestling with. Maybe they did not grow up being told, hey, I'm allowed to ask questions of my faith and the things that I believe. But I love that you said we are just always constructing. And I think it's not so much necessarily, it's partly what we were taught and how we were taught it, right? But I also know myself as a child. I remember myself being (laughs) distracted in Sunday school or youth group or, oh my gosh, when I finally was old enough to sit in service on Sunday and listen to the pastor's message, I guarantee you it was also my own interpretation Mm -hmm. and the way I received things and the way I took it in. And there were definitely barriers there as well. You know, we can only learn to the extent that we're willing to hear and listen and understand and process and I think there's something about, there's a discomfort there for a lot of people when they start to ask questions and things maybe start to unravel, but a big part of growing and learning, be it about scripture or, you know, doing life with people who don't look like you is embracing that discomfort and saying, I'm uncomfortable and I'm not used to feeling this, but learning that that's okay. Absolutely. You know, when I was with you guys at Mosaic, we talked about how Christ died with his arms outstretched. He held everyone in tension. And tension is what typically pastoral leaders and churches want to eliminate for people. It's the worst thing you can do. You need to run to the tension. Christ died with his arms outstretched, the Democrats on his left hand and the Republicans on his right, and the gays and the straights and the rich and the poor and the men and the women and the blacks and the whites. And he holds us all in tension. And that's uh, how I describe it, the exact thing you're talking about. Embrace the discomfort. You don't have to have it all figured out. You know, I had a very difficult relationship with my mother as an adult. Uh, she passed five years ago. Mm-hmm. As I continue to grow and come into understanding that she had, now with my own adult children and my own grandchildren, the longer I go in life, the more I see what she saw that I didn't see when I was 35, that I didn't see that I was 40. And this requires humility. So if you're a young person, anybody under 60 is young to me, right? (laughs) If if you're young today, man, don't feel like you've got to get into polarized extremes on anything in this world. Leave yourself open. Allow yourself to both construct and be constructed by the Spirit of God uh, to learn, to test, to ask good questions. But don't feel like you've got to make a definitive choice one way or the other on, on some things that the world is forcing us into their mold on this issue. Of course, we're going to need to come to the conclusions about who do you say that I am? What do we believe about Jesus? How do we want to live our lives? Do we want to live it, making it up as we go? Or do we want to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator in the word of God, which has proven through thousands of centuries to be the anchor in the rock, uh, the, the tether ball pole, if you will, to all the craziness of the ball swinging back and forth in life. Yeah, we're going to have to make some decisions about that. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, we will continue to grow in our understanding of who God is, how much he loves us, how we're called to love others in his name, uh, how we actually live out that word of God, and not feeling like you have to have, nor do any of us have all the answers. Yeah, that's so good. So many, there are so many things that, and people that we miss out on when we're not willing to learn from diverse voices and people and, and just have the experience, you Mm -hmm. know, that's different than what we're, what we're used to. 
speaking of <laughs> discomfort and all that, talk to me about, I know a lot of times, and you, you said you want to take the word diversity out of church in general, but a lot of times when people do hear that word, they go racial, right? They think about race, but I know for me, at least the experience of also gender and how some people might be okay with, okay, we can have black, white, Hispanic, Latin, Latinx, you know, whatever, all together in one church. But if there's a female pastor, man, buddy, that's not biblical. What do you have? Do you have any thoughts on women in, in ministry leadership roles? Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you brought that up because again, this kind of goes back to the deconstruction, reconstruction, construction, whatever you want to call it, but just <laughs> ongoing learning. So I, I will just tell you of my own experience in this regard. Uh, uh, I, you know, I was raised Catholic. So in the Catholic church, you don't have female priests. Mm -hmm. um, I became a believer at 19, a, a follower of Jesus. And I became a, a believer in a conservative Baptist church. I uh, got a full ride baseball scholarship my sophomore year to Liberty University when I was just 10 years old. So naturally, I'm in an independent fundamentalist Baptist environment for three years. Uh, came out uh, and continued in the conservative Baptist church as a youth pastor for a couple of years, and then essentially into non-denominational Bible churches the rest of my life. That's been for 37 years. Now, when I went to seminary, and I was a youth pastor for the first 18 years of my life, working in Bible churches, going to a non-denominational seminary, I remember in the 80s, them having a conversation about egalitarian versus complementarian. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I wasn't paying attention. I was a 28-year-old <laughs> youth pastor. I didn't really care about any of that. I had men and women on my staff, both in youth ministry as paid staff and as interns. I always called them uh, pastors, I, but I didn't really think about it. I, it was, I wasn't making a statement. It just It was my youth ministry, and I wasn't thinking about this stuff at a macro level for the church. Sure. Uh, or even biblically, it's just what we did now. Um, but I will say in terms of implicit bias on the issue, because I look back and I realize I was in a uh, complementarian environments, I deep down somewhere I had, I'd never given it any thought, but I, I, I imagine there was an implicit bias towards complementarian. Now, then I plant a church in 2001. And I hired the first three hires. We had five people, me and four others, and three were women. Mm -hmm. She's the pastor of this, and she's the pastor of this. Again, not thinking about it, not worried about an argument, not trying to make a statement. It's just what you do. There's men sure. and women who serve God together. A few years into it, though, I, I don't remember what triggered this, but I thought, I better give some thought to this. You know, now I'm planted a church. I'm a pastor of a church. Maybe I read something. Maybe I thought just intuitively, it's going to come up. I better really actually study this issue. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. like, I better have an answer for what I'm doing here. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> I start, so, and I have today a doctorate in exegetical theology. I used to have a master's. I mean, I have a master's in it and now a doctorate in it. So I have studied how to draw meaning out of the, out of the, the text. So I, in these moments, just like with the racial divisions of the American church in the late nineties, I, in a sense, threw out what I learned. So I said, I'm just going to come to the text as an open book and see what it has to say to me. Okay. Now, uh, I'll just give you two fronts on this. So again, with the implicit bias of being a complementarian, setting that aside, I, I open up the word. And I look at a couple of major arguments. So one of them is Paul in 1 Corinthians. I'm sure you've heard this, right? Paul mm -hmm. says women must be silent. 
or, uh, you know, uh, women must be silent in the church, right? Um, uh, First Corinthians chapter 14, women should keep silent in the churches. Uh, now, uh, and he says, he goes on, for they are not permitted to speak. I don't let them speak, whatever. And then he says, they got to go home and ask their husbands. All right, now, <laughs> I looked at that passage. So first of all, being a good exegete, you have to understand the culture of the times. Yeah. In the Jewish synagogue, men and women were separated, number one. So there's a whole section for women. Let's just, in our minds, imagine there's a balcony of women and the men are in, uh, uh, downstairs next to the rabbi. Number two, in the synagogue, you didn't sit and listen to a 40-minute message. We have the example of Jesus opening the scrolls, reading a scripture, making a comment, and then everybody arguing. Okay. Because this is how the Eastern men, you debate, you argue, I'm, I'm, you get passionate, you express yourself, and there's a debate, there's an argument, there's a point and a counterpoint interaction with the rabbi and with everybody else in the room. And this is how you learn. So number two, not only are women separated uh, from the men uh, physically, but the way they are listening and interacting with scripture is argumentative and very vocal and very oral. Now, number three, you got to understand who wrote this book. Well, the apostle Paul, we already know his gospel is inclusion. Galatians 3, 28, men and women, Jews, Gentiles, rich and poor. God, uh, the, the key thing for Paul is the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. This is the theme of every book he writes, the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. And what he's talking about is we as a church must present a unified front to the unbelieving world and to the person who walks in the door because the craziness is all outside. We have to show them something different. And we do that by being one in purpose, mind, spirit, Philippians 2, he talks about it. Ephesians, he talks about it. Romans, he talks about it. Galatians, he talks about it. So the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. Now, in Corinthians, he's, this is in part why he says you can't speak in tongues. Look, I pray in tongues. This is Paul speaking, right? Hey, I pray in tongues. I love that I have the gift of tongues. I love praying to Jesus. I love speaking in tongues. But even I don't speak tongues in the, in the pulpit. Why? Because if the unbeliever walks in and sees me from his or her perspective babbling, yeah, right, they're right. going to they don't we're understand. Whack. They're going to think we're <laughs> whack, and they're going to turn right around and go out. Because so we need to present a unified messaging, and we do that not by speaking in tongues in the pulpit. And by the way, in First Corinthians, this is also one of two places Paul tells both men and women to be silent. Like you must be silent. If you speak in tongues, don't stand up and speak in tongues. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. This is the same idea of you must be silent with that gift. And he's telling that to men and women. Hmm. So when you understand Paul, et cetera, now you get to this passage, 1 Corinthians 14. I don't let women speak in the church. Well, the Greek word for woman is the same word that's used for wives. So unlike Koine Greek, where you have multiple, uh, multiple words for the word love, agape, eros, uh, phileo, you only have one word for woman or wives, and the word is gune, said in English, G-U-N-E, gune. And how do you know in a passage if, the, if gune should be translated woman or if it should be translated wife? How do you know that? Well, good exegesis tells us you have to look at the context. Yeah. So think about this passage, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have my Bible in front of me. But Paul says, I do not, and this is the way it was interpreted over 2,000 years by a male-dominated church, Yes. right? Uh, because again, culture, women weren't educated. 
this goes back to ancient, you see what I'm saying? So it's not yeah. just the evolution of knowledge. Women got pregnant, stayed home, took care of the kids. They're not educated. So of course, it's going to be a male dominated church out of the Old Testament into the new. But as time goes on and women receive education, blah, blah, okay, times change. So that's not like all oh, those bad men are keeping all the women down. We're, we're 2000 years removed from some of this stuff. Different so culture. Can, yeah. Right. So all that's to say is that over 2000 years, then this passage gets interpreted as it is in our English Bibles today. Women must be silent in the church, but the word should actually be translated wives. How do you know that? Because the very next verse says, so if you got a problem, go home and ask your husband. Mm. How does a single woman go home and ask her husband something? <laughs> yeah. Clearly, exegetical construction tells us that word should be translated wives in that context because Paul attaches it to a husband. Now, why would Paul say wives keep silent in the church? Well, go back. Women are separated from the men. The wives are in the balcony. You know, the rabbi says something and I, Mark the Maz, get up and I start arguing with him. Okay. Now, when I start arguing with him, all of a sudden, let's say you and I are married and you're in the balcony and you stand up and you start yelling, no, Mark, he's right. I'm telling you this. <laughs> and then I turn around and I go, sit down, Kristen. He's not. And you and I get in an argument oh, man. in front of the congregation and in front of that person who walked in the door that doesn't know Jesus. They're going to say, this place is whack. I'm arguing with my wife and husband at home. I don't need to come into a church and argue. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. This is the context of that passage. In that culture, if your husband is engaged in the argument, as they learn through the rabbi, then you stay silent. And then you go home and argue with them all you want. But don't <laughs> do it in front of the body and don't do it in front of unbelievers if your husband's already engaged. Okay. Well, yeah. So number one, the second thing is where, again, these are big arguments, but the second one is elders, right? Uh, where you have a passage like, uh, you know, in Timothy and Titus, particularly, you've got this idea of, of appointing elders and yes, women are deacons, but not appointed as elders or not mentioned. They're mentioned as wives, not necessarily elders, et cetera, et cetera. And arguing out of first Timothy and, and Titus, right? That yeah. men should be elders in the church. Well, again, any good exegete knows you start with culture and context. Yeah. In that culture, women by and large are not educated. They're not. This is where Paul is so freeing. Galatians 3.28, when he says men and women, Jews, Gentile, rich and poor, what he's saying, he's not saying there's no such thing as men and women in the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying there's no such thing as, uh, you know, rich and poor. No, what he's saying is that in the kingdom of God, which is kingdom of God is the church, heaven on earth, the kingdom of God is at hand. In the church, as it will be in heaven, men are not better than women. Jews are not better than Gentiles, and the rich are not better than the poor. The level, it's a level playing field at the foot of the cross. This is what Paul is saying, and this is how he lived his life. He was an equitable guy, if you will. And he's making the case in a Jewish culture, because in Jewish culture, the worst thing you could be was a Gentile woman. Huh. And, and, and so the point is, it goes up from there. So the point, uh, you know, so the highest thing was a Jewish man. And, and Paul is correcting all that for the church. So all that's to say in that culture uh, where Jewish men look down on women, number one, 
uh, they women weren't educated, et cetera, et cetera. Women weren't appointed to the highest, you know, to, to office of elder. It was assumed that way. They could be servants, they could be waiters of tables, but not necessarily sitting in the room making decisions. Now, that was, in my opinion, that's not a timeless truth. Okay, that's a culture, that's culturally bound. Now, this is what somebody conservative is going to sit in the room with me and go, no, that's a timeless truth. And then, and then I'm going to say, well, how come your wife wears earrings? Right. Or toe rings? How, why? Right. And he goes, oh, that was a cultural thing. Well, I'm, I want to say, who gets to decide what culture is and what's not? Like, who, who gets to decide that? Like, who gets to say, well, wearing a rings is a cultural thing. It doesn't apply to today. But, oh, no, this idea of why he's being signed of the church, it applies today. Who, who's making those calls? I think they're right. disingenuous. And at the end of the day, then, Christian, uh, Kristen, what I'm saying on this is on this passage and this idea of elders and men and Titus and Timothy, I see that as culturally bound truth. I don't think it's timeless. I think the godliness, et cetera, et cetera, that goes alongside with the elders, that is, that is a timeless truth. The character, the chemistry, right? Uh, but not this idea of men and women. I think it's a time, it's a culturally bound deal. And here's why, because in our culture today, 21st century United States, if you don't have a woman and women in key positions of responsible authority, those who are far away from God give us no credence. Mm -hmm. And it's not about giving me credence. It's about giving the gospel credence. Do you honestly think that Jesus Christ on the right hand of God cares more about we, we protected Jesus, we protected men over women, you know, we defended you, or do you think he cares about people getting, getting saved and coming to right. know him? Which one do you think he cares about? Right. So at the end of the day, it's in our culture, it's different than that culture. And in our culture, if you don't have women in responsible position authority, the gospel is undermined. And I think, and I'm bold enough to look Jesus in the eye someday and tell me if I'm wrong, but I am, I am <laughs> bold enough to think that I have the mind of Christ on this. And I think people like you and Naeem and others do that, which, which one is more. Okay. And then this is my last point on that issue. You know what it ultimately comes down to it's say, well, let me, let me just counter that. I'll tell you why it's timeless because God made Adam first. <laughs> And, I'm, and I want to say to that person, really? Okay, wait, let me, let me just get this straight. You're going to say in 2022, Western culture, United States of America, that I got to give a woman a second position in the church, though, be, because 5,000 years ago, a man was created before a woman. Really? That's, <laughs> that's what it boils down to. Okay, and on that point, I can't argue. Yes, Adam was created first. But what I can argue, I don't think that informs 2022 United States culture on the point that we're talking about for the reasons we're talking about it. So on those two things, my story for anybody listening, and I hope that encourages you and or others to check these things out for themselves. I, I opened it up with a blank slate. I set aside what I believe was implicit complementarian bias. I came to the scripture with an open mind, and that's where I landed exegetically. I love all that, Mark. And I, I mean, obviously as a female <laughs> pastor, I am going to appreciate, you know, just the way that you can speak into what you've learned and all of that. But I think again, it goes back to our point just a few minutes ago of you have to lay everything aside. 
and be willing to say, what could I have been wrong about? What do I need to reshape or think about differently? And honestly, am I being maybe vulnerable, humble enough to let God show me, Hey, you've thought this way for a long time, but it doesn't actually line up. Like somebody else told you these were my words, but they're really not. And so now let me speak to you. Let me tell you what the truth is. Let me show you how scripture aligns with my heart and my character. And it does, it can change. It can change everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on that point, this is, goes back to the, even the ethnic diversity, or, or as we're talking about now, men and women and leadership and responsible authority in the local church. Um, uh, what, what, if you're listening, as you're listening to this folks and Kristen too, um, this is true about me. I didn't, I don't, I'm not saying, oh yeah, Kristen, be a pastor just because I like you. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying, hey, the church should be diverse because, you know, demographic shifts and the country's becoming more uh, brown, if you will, 20, you know, 50% of kids under 20 are non-white. See, I, for me, Mark DeMoss, I have to know this, these things are truly in the word of God that these are theologically sound, solid exegetical arguments, biblically based. Uh, and once I know that, then I have the confidence to argue that position. But if I just said, oh, women can be in ministry because Kristen, I really like Kristen. Or <laughs> women should be in ministry because I have two daughters. Yeah. Okay, I might say that, but it's an emotional appeal. It's not exegetically sound. And if you hear folks, any passion, from me on either the issue of ethnic inclusion in the local church and or women in leadership. Uh, I hope if anything else you've heard from me today, you hear that I, my positions are strongly rooted in sound grammatical historical exegesis. Yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, it all comes down to, we can explain and we can share resources and all of the things the the knowledge, all of what we've learned. Right. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, this is what God has called me to. This is not something that as a fee, I never thought I was going to be a pastor. I was perfectly fine (laughs) teaching kindergarten. And I didn't decide one day, like you said, Oh, there should be more female pastors. So I'm going to go after this. That title was actually offered to me four years prior. And I turned it down. I was like, are you kidding? Like, do you know what title you just offered me? Like, I'm just a regular person. And God made it very, very clear that this was the direction for my life. And so, yeah, at a certain point you engage and you have conversations with people that are willing to listen and people that genuinely want to know and are genuinely open to things. And then at a certain point you just go, okay, like, that's where you are. And this is where I am. And we can open the Bible and we can't read two different things, but all I know is I have to follow God and this is what he's called me to. And so that's it. That's that, you know, and he is using me. And if, if other people have a hard time seeing that, mm-hmm. I mean, that's on them at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, again, it's easy for me as a man to look you in the eye and given 39 years of ministry and whatever to look you in the eye and say, and say, Hey, Kristen, don't worry about it. So I know it's not just that simple. Having said that I do, as I've told you privately and anybody, any other women who might be in positions of leadership or seeking that or wanting or, or in fact, in 
I do think like, just live into the thing. Let that be the yeah. thing that wakes you up every day, not worrying about what somebody thinks about you or doesn't think about to you right. in terms of your position. Just be it, do the work. And, and what will happen, I have no doubt, because this has happened to me in my life on many fronts, and it doesn't always happen, but you get enough of these over time because people come up to you someday and they go, you know, Kristen, some guy's going to walk up to you. Go, yeah, when you first started pastoring or preaching, I wasn't sure. And it's five years down the road. But see, you know what? I have been blessed by you. You've led me well. And those are the moments you hang on yeah. to. And yeah. those are the moments that, that, that you say, hey, I know this is right, but that's what I mean. So it's not as easy to say, don't worry about it. Uh, on the other hand, don't be consumed by it. Just lean into sure. your calling, live into your calling. And if people got a problem with it, God bless you. There's the door. Right. Well, and I would say for other women or other minorities or anybody listening that maybe it's not even in the ministry, but they feel like, you know, they're going against the grain. It does get easier. And I think for me, exactly like you said, placing my value in my calling, knowing that my worth and my value comes from God and not in the opinions of, of others, it does get easier and easier to either face the critics or the comments, or honestly, just to not respond to them at all yeah, and just leave right. them alone. So yeah, absolutely. And, and that also is part of our age where many of us have a very difficult time not responding because we're conditioned to do it. And, you know, there's like, the old writer wrote in Ecclesia, there's a time to speak and a time to yes, hold your tongue. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Awesome. Mark, this has been so great. Thank you so much. If people want to learn more about you or find you on social media, where, where should they go? Yeah. Well, my last name is not easy to spell, but everything I do is under my name. So it's Mark Demaz. Uh, last name is D like David, E like Edward. Y like yellow, M like Mary, A, Z like zebra, Mark Demaz on every, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, uh, you can Google the books I've written on Amazon. By the way, got a brand new book coming out in May of 2022 called Multi-Ethnic Conversations for Kids. So oh follow gosh, up book for our curriculum, Multi-Ethnic Conversations, published by Wesleyan Publishing House. Uh, so, uh, parents, if, if there's parents on the uh, wait, great way to introduce them to 21 days of devotionals with your kids on this subject written with my co-author Onia Akwabi, a PhD sociologist, uh, multi other conversation for kids comes out in May, but you can Google all this on Amazon and my name to those books. And Kristen, you know about this, but if any ministry leaders are listening, uh, we at mosaics, M O S A I X dot info put on a national event every three years you're going to be one of the speakers this year we have 100 <laughs> speakers typically 12 or 1300 people we only do the event every three years and here in 2022 that is coming up november 8 through 10 in dallas texas uh the website's mosaicsconference.com that's mosaics m-o-s m like mary o-s like sam a-i-x like x-ray conference.com we'd love to have you Awesome. And we can link all of that up in the show notes as well. So if you are listening and you're driving, you didn't catch that. Well, we'll, we'll link it all up. Awesome. Guys, please uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate it. That helps us so much, helps other people to find the show and listen, share this episode. If you have people that are deconstructing, reconstructing, asking some of these questions, maybe really struggling with, um, diversity in the church or females in ministry leadership, any of the things that we talked about today, share this and hopefully you will be becoming the church in their world. Thanks guys.